America. A tin hat. Addies. Welcome to Fearless, the hottest hitting show in the airwaves. I'm your thrill sergeant, Uncle Jimmy, and him, well, he's the captain of this vessel. That's Jason Whitlock, man. Hey, it's the day before Friday. We got a great show planned for you. First of all, we have the loquacious one. And of course, I'm talking about TJ Moe. He's gonna be here, and we're also gonna have our very own Stephen A. And of course, I'm talking about Stephen A. Kim. Now, they're both gonna be here, and they're gonna be talking about the eviction in Jacksonville, all right? They're talking about the eviction of Urban Meyer, okay? And speaking of Jacksonville, let's talk about Jackson State's Deion Sanders. Y'all know what? Maybe he really is a head coach. This dude just grabbed one of the top recruits in the country. Yep, come to think about it, I don't really know who said it best. Was it our very own Jason Whitlock or Santa Claus? Jason said, and I quote, holy Britney Renner, Batman. And Santa Claus said, and I quote, ho, ho, ho. Anyway, let's see what Steve and TJ have to say about this. Also joining us and bringing and coming back into the house, we got the professor. And I'm talking about Delano Squires, Professor D. And he's gonna be in here to elucidate us, okay? And for some of you that don't know what that means and you're not as well versed as I, that just simply means that he's coming in here to shed light upon. And he's talking about does America really have an identity crisis? Okay, and this next guest, Ray Goodman and Brown wrote a song about her. And it just said, she must be a special lady and a very exciting girl. And of course, I'm talking about the one and only first lady of the Fearless family. I'm talking about Shamika Michelle. Shamika's gonna be here to talk about how a school changed the sexual identity of a child without getting the, getting the parents' consent. Look here, man. I don't know, but I'm gonna tell you in the words of Ricky Ricardo, Someone got some splaining to do, Mika. All right, so wait, hold it. Uh, check this out, man. It's that time. Y'all need to go hit the likes. Y'all need to go hit the subscribes. Y'all need to go get geared up at the shopmedia.com slash fearless. Come on, y'all. Release the doves. Release the hounds. Give him five stars. Not because he's needy, but because he's greedy. The man that's so big, he had to use a toe hitch for a belly ring. It's my guy, Big Jason Whitlock. Let's give it up, y'all. Uncle Jimmy, uh, good job as always. Uh, fantastic Thursday show. Uh, we're going to get things rolling with uh, TJ Moe and Steve Kim because I want to talk about something kind of big picture about this rapidly changing sports world. I- I've never seen, and look, we've watched the entire world change on a dime from COVID to uh, look to the summer of George Floyd and how 
criminals are now the most protected species on the planet, uh, but things in the sports world are changing just as fast. Uh, and I'm not, I, I can't make up my mind, are things changing for the better or for the worst? I've always been someone who wanted to see change in college sports. I th the amateurism model, I think, has outlived its usefulness. And so uh, I, I was someone that has been preaching against amateurism for 15, 16, 17, maybe even 20 years. I, ca I can't remember, I'm old. Uh, and so things have changed with this name, image, and likeness deal, and now Deion Sanders at Jackson State University has landed one of the top recruits in the country, a kid named Travis Hunter. Some people have him ranked as the number one recruit. Some people have him as the number two recruit. Uh, he's decommitted from Florida State, Deion's alma mater, and has joined Deion at Jackson State. There are rumors all across the internet that uh, Barstool Sports is, is going to sign a name, image, and likeness deal with Travis Hunter uh, that's going to pay him around a million, million and a half. Dion uh, was on ESPN with uh, Keyshawn Johnson, Max Kellerman, and uh, Jay Williams and, and denied that, you know, there's some blockbuster major deal. Dion said, hey, man, how am I going to have a kid on, on my team uh, who makes more money than me? I'm the head coach. Uh, but isn't that the concept in the NFL? Don't players make more than the head coach in the NFL routinely? And, you know, Deion played in the NFL for a long time. I know he's in college sports, uh, football now. Uh, but, but to see one of the top recruits in all the country choose an HBCU, to walk away from a Power 5 school in Florida State University, speaks to like, man, things are changing and not everybody is all that happy about it, including Dabo Sweeney, one of my favorite coaches, the head coach at Clemson. Dabo uh, was quoted this week about the transfer portal and everything that's going on in recruiting. National Signing Day was this week. Uh, Dabo's quote, it's total chaos right now tampering galore, kids being manipulated, grass is greener and all that stuff as opposed to putting the work in and graduating. There's no consequences. So now you've got agents and NIL tampering and you have no consequences. No consequences equals no conscience. There's no reason for pause, no barrier for young people like nothing. Education is like the last thing now. That's Dabo Sweeney. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about all of this, about Dion Landing, Travis Hunter, about Dabo Sweeney's comments. A friend of mine who has worked with some of the top college prospects uh, for the last 20, 25 years, uh, you know, said he was happy that this change has happened. He said Dabo Sweeney's in trouble. He's toast that the whole college landscape has changed and Dabo's not on board, he's not on board with the change, and so he's gonna get left behind. I wanted amateurism to end. I was not a big fan of this NIL deal. I felt like these colleges, both in football and basketball, needed to partner up with 
uh, the NFL and the NBA and figure out a way to compensate the best players in college football and basketball uh, together to protect football and basketball from you know, maybe a new level of corruption. And I know some people say, oh, it's always been corrupt. And everybody was happy when the coaches was making all this money. And, you know, now the kids are getting made. you just a hater. With like, no, I'm not just a hater. I'm a former college athlete, former Division I scholarship football player who argued for a long time against amateurism. I just don't like the way it has ended. I, Dislike is a strong word. I don't know if I'm comfortable with the way things have changed, all the way from the transfer portal to NIL. Why can't I say NIL? Uh, I'm just, I'm just not comfortable. I, you know, all change is in good change, and is this well thought out change, or is this something that's just being foisted upon college athletics and college sports? And will it take us to a better place? I don't think so, but I want to discuss this and debate this because there's, you know, there's other, look, the other part of this overarching thing about change in sports is like, Urban Meyer went from one of the best football coaches of all time to a laughing stock overnight. And a guy that's being ridiculed all across, uh, you know, the, football world all across social media as if he's one of the worst human beings on the planet and maybe he's always had it coming you know we heard from TJ uh, earlier this week about how he's never liked Urban Meyer and and so we'll get into that with TJ and Steve Kim as well but I, I just want to start with Deion Sanders top recruit in the country going to Jackson State University and and what does this all mean? And, and uh, listen, if someone wants to check my archives, and, and even though they're not still there, I wrote a whole series when I was at AOL Sports in the 2006, 2007 range about how uh, college athletes, particularly African-American college athletes, if they really wanted to disrupt things, they would choose HBCUs, that they would take their talents and use those talents to build up schools that educated kids from their zip codes. This is not some, what Dion's doing and what Travis Hunter's doing is something I've been in support of for a long time. But I do have concerns like, is Dion gonna stay the course? Is he, I would love to see Dion turn Jackson State into a national powerhouse able to play at the Division I label, uh, level and able to compete against Alabama and anybody else at the Division I level? Or is Dion going to jump to a Power 5 school first chance he gets? Anyway, uh, I want to discuss some and all of this with T.J. Moe and Steve Kim. We'll start with T.J. Moe. T.J. played, obviously, at the University of Missouri, had a great illustrious career there at the University of Missouri. TJ, all this change that we're witnessing, how significant is it? Is, is, is what Dion has pulled off here, is it sustainable? Do you think Dion will stay the course at Jackson State? How big is all of this? Uh, it's big. 
So, no, I do not think Dion is going to stay the course at Jackson State. I told you last week, I think he is aiming for Florida State and he will be back there as soon as he can. Everybody wants to go to a place with more resources and, and Dion is no different. Uh, it is it is quite instructive uh, how he phrased that he would not allow one of his players to make more money than him. Dion has always been about Dion first and foremost, and Dion wants to be the face of Florida State, his alma mater. He'll be right back there. There are so many layers to this conversation. I'll address the first one that you that you brought up. Is this sustainable? It is quite possible that many of the pundits were wrong when they said the rich are just going to get richer. Because think about it for a second. Jason Whitlock went to Ball State, not a not a an Ohio State or a Florida or a USC. Jason Whitlock has grown up to have a really successful career. I'm sure there are a ton of Ball State alumni that have grown up to have very successful careers. Remember, some of the richest people in the entire world went to the Ivy League schools. If they wanted to make Harvard the best football team in the world, they certainly could. You know, so it, it would be very easy for Jason Whitlock to get with four or five other guys who have done really well, put some money together and say, hey, we're landing two of the top 10 recruits this year and we're gonna pay whatever it takes to get them to do that. It's possible that that everyone was wrong when they said, listen, Alabama's got the biggest donors, Texas has the biggest donors, A&M's got all the oil money. There are successful alumni from every school in the country and like we've talked about, some of the some of the Ivy League schools and some of the others have some of the richest people. I mean, we saw there's two, I think, billionaires out of Michigan State. They're not Florida. They're not Ohio State. If you want to go get guys, you can certainly do that. So that's one layer of this. The second layer is that I hate the framing of this conversation, and it's something that every person does. Um, I'm guilty of it. Uh, you're guilty of it. It is it is the idea that is this good for the sport? And we can only really see it from our own perspective. So it's it's us. What does TJ Moe and Jason Whitlock want to see? We were a part of it. We both played on the Division One level. But in no other place in America do we say, is this good for McDonald's? Is this good for Nike? No other business. All we do is we say, what do we do as Americans to give workers as many rights as they can? This is America. We want people to have to have whatever they need to pursue whatever that is within the Constitution. And so we're getting there now. I mean, in fact, the only reason that the NIL is where it is is because you took it to the Supreme Court and they said, you can't keep doing this. So we treat college sports so differently than we do anywhere else in America. I, I think we ought to reframe our thinking and say, what is best? How do we treat this like an American business? Because that's exactly what this is. Mm. It's hard for me to do that, and, and I, I agree with your argument. It makes a lot of sense. But I'm a sports fan, and so I'm <laughs> always thinking about what's best for me as a fan. Yeah, me too. And, and, then, and then I start thinking about, okay, what's, what's fair, what's best for these kids? And what Dabo is arguing is that, like, there's some instant gratification being offered some of these kids. But in the long haul, removing, diminishing the educational process from college football and basketball is not going to serve these kids in the long haul. And so 
take me as an example, as you did. My experience at Ball State didn't really pay off until I graduated and entered the workforce and built a strong career off of that foundation that they provided me to even get a college education. If not for football, I would not be college educated. And so when I start thinking about all of the kids and what works best for them, is it, oh, they got $50,000 when they were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old and blew it on wine, women, and song like I would have done when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. You know, got me a nice little gold chain, made sure I had all the right sneakers and all that stuff. You know, and so I, I, I just don't know if this serves the kids over the long haul because I tend to agree with Dabo here. Education is now, and maybe it always was, but I'm just sorry. It, for me at Ball State, education came after winning and after football, but that's about it. You know, education was still a high priority. I think what he's arguing is that it's not remotely a priority right now, and does that serve the young people well? Fair enough. I, I will tell you, perhaps the most disingenuous thing a head football coach can do is make an argument about like Dabo just did. By the way, full disclaimer, I love Dabo Sweeney. So my my criticism is as much as much because I like him as as anything else. Um, he made a full argument about everything that was unfair and hard for his team, and then he finished up with, by the way, what about education? So he's not interested in education. No head football coach is interested in education. They know that that's what the average person can relate to. They went, got their education. It's just a nice, easy out. But what about the kids, right? It's like when you put something terrible on TV, you, you say, what about the kids? You shouldn't have that on. You don't care about the kids. You just think that shouldn't be on TV. That is what's happening here with Dabo. That irks me a little bit. What I would, what I would like for Dabo to do, I cannot stand guys who complain and complain and, and then just don't take responsibility. He used the word manipulate, okay? You look up the, uh, the definition of manipulate to manage or influence skillfully, especially in an unfair manner. What's unfair, Dabo? You walked into these kids' living rooms and you convinced them to come to Clemson. You've got the girl, you're married, and you lost her. Isn't this on you? Like, what is unfair about this? Somebody else is waving money in front of their face, Somebody, another agent has come in. You've got them at Clemson, one of the, one of the top two to three programs over the last five to 10 years, and they're already here. You already won the battle in the living room. It's your job to keep them. I would like a head coach to come out and say, this is chaos. It is absolute chaos. We went from not paying kids anything to the Supreme Court saying we have to allow them to get paid, but it's not like the NFL because there's no contractual agreement. This is why chaos is, is likely to to continue. I mean, you really have no choice if you're not going to be the ones paying them. And we all agree, since there's only a, a, a four to five year period that these kids are going to be there, we want to give them leeway to be able to make that mistake and transfer if they need to. If the schools aren't going to be the ones to pay them, that means there's never a contract, which means there will be chaos forever. So the only way to overcome that is to be such a great coach and such a great leader as to convince your second and third stringers that their time will come. And when you come to graduate, this is the best place for you to do it. Mm. 
good luck convincing 18, 19, and 20 year olds of anything. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, well, see, I just think sometimes young people have to be forced. They have to be hogtied and pushed and fed vegetables. I wish someone had tied me down and fed me vegetables instead of Big Macs uh, because I've left to my own devices. You're looking at what will happen. Hey, I'm going <laughs> to give you an opportunity uh, to gloat if you want to. Uh, you savaged Urban Meyer uh, earlier this week, or was it late last week? I can't remember. And now the Jacksonville Jaguars agree with you, and they fired Urban Meyer. I think we got a breakdown of what was going to the 2-11 and 11 Jaguars and what they had done the previous 13 seasons or whatever. So uh, put that on screen, and then we'll let uh, TJ gloat about Urban Meyer getting canned. I don't I don't uh, I don't like to gloat about guys losing their jobs. It's his well-being, not that Urban Meyer needs any money. I do think it's a good thing that he's not leading young men. I think that's a win for all of us. I don't think he does a good job of it. I think he cares about Urban Meyer and Urban Meyer only and he tries to win. And I think now the 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 result of this, unfortunately, is that he ends up back in the college ranks who and then leading actual kids. It's actually a loss. I would prefer him in the in the head coaching ranks where some of these, you know, a lot of these guys are men. You're not you're not telling uh, you're not telling your ninth year linebacker what he can and can't do and shouldn't do. A lot of these guys are married to have kids. There are certainly kids on the team. I would prefer that he, if he's going to be coaching, he's in the NFL ranks because those people are not as susceptible to uh, to the garbage that he actually acts out in his life. I think it's worse off in college. He he's going to end up back in the college ranks because just like every other head coach uh, that has ever existed. I mean, we saw this when when Steve Spurrier failed in the NFL, he came back when Nick Saban failed in the NFL, he came back. You see this over and over again. Their egos are too big. So while I while I do appreciate that he's for the time being not leading young men, he'll be back at it and will be leading more susceptible young men in short order. And I'm just not a big fan of that. And he'll probably be getting paid more money in college football than he was with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Shad Khan made a, the owner of the Jags made an interesting decision here. He bowed to the, to the mob and, and got rid you gotta remember, like Bill Belichick failed spectacularly with the Cleveland Browns. And in this current society and system, he probably would have never got a second chance. And, Different, and Belichick though. had a great reputation. Go ahead, different how? Well, I mean, Belichick won 11 and five one year with the Browns. It's not like he, he failed right off yeah. the bat. It was a little bit different time, but he did have a, one great season. If you go 11 and five at any time with the Cleveland Browns, you deserve a lifetime contract. I mean, that is that bad of an organization. <laughs> so that's one thing. The second thing is that Belichick, I mean, we talked about manipulation. Belichick is not a manipulator. He is a, here are the rules, follow them or don't. If you follow them, you'll be here. If you don't, you won't. Urban Meyer is a true manipulator. He's a guy that benched his running back, didn't give any explanation, and, and Trevor Lawrence had to come confront him about it in the middle of a game. He's a guy who uh, who sat all of his coaches down and had to have them convince him why they should even be there. He's always playing mind games. This that is, He's not the adult in the room. Belichick's an adult. At least he and Kraft sit down and have legitimate conversations about what should be done, and they're honest with each other. I don't know if Urban Meyer's ever had an honest conversation with anybody in his life. Mm. TJ, 
Harsh words from a harsh man, TJ Moe. All right, TJ, we're going to let you go. Uh, Steve Kim is right around the corner, but before we get to Steve Kim, I'm going to tell you about my good friends at Good Ranchers. Christmas time is here. You're probably looking for the perfect gift. Boy, does Good Ranchers have it. Don't waste money on a gadget they'll throw away before New Year's Eve. Get them something they're actually going to use and enjoy. Food! Good Ranchers. A box of 100% American meat that's steakhouse quality. Choose the Ranchers Classic or the Cowboy to have a variety of great meats to satisfy everyone in your family this holiday season. But the best thing about Good Ranchers is that when you order, you're ordering locally from farms right here in America. Keep local American farms and ranches open. Give a gift they'll remember for years to come. Get your Good Ranchers box or gift card today. Tis the season for open hearts and full stomachs. So buy Good Ranchers with my promo code FEARLESS for $20 off and free express shipping. Just go to GoodRanchers.com backslash FEARLESS or use the promo code FEARLESS at checkout to take advantage of this special holiday offer. Good Ranchers, they support me, you, America, and our way of thinking. All right, the Korean Cosell, Erks. All right, time to roll out to Los Angeles and bring in our main man, Steve Kim, uh, to further our discussion about this changing sports landscape. And, and I'm gonna take it a little slightly different direction with Steve by saying that Dave Portnoy, the founder of Barstool Sports, is he the most important person in sports right now? And, and I know that Dion has denied that Barstool Sports uh, is paying this Travis Hunter kid to go to Jackson State, that they, you know, signed some NIL deal uh, with Travis Hunter. But I, 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 I got to say, Dave Portnoy and Barstool, they're the most disruptive thing I think we've seen in the sports world since Colin Kaepernick, and maybe more disruptive than Colin Kaepernick, Dave Portnoy, Dave Portnoy and, and the fact that Deion Sanders left the NFL network, corporate media, to go work at Barstool, and that Barstool is supporting Deion and his efforts at Jackson State, and whatever kind of deal Barstool ends up signing with Travis Hunter, just goes to, to speak to how disruptive Dave Portnoy and Barstool Sports have been and continue to be. And for the first time, didn't, I think ESPN started in the late 1970s and they've had no rival at any point in their history. And I know Fox Sports and I work there and I respect the people at Fox Sports, but Fox Sports has never had the balls to really challenge ESPN. And it's kind of laughable and to say, well, well, they got the NFL, the Fox Sports has all these other sports, and Barstool doesn't have any TV rights. It's laughable to call them a rival to ESPN or to say they're more disruptive and more of a threat than Fox Sports. But they are, and he is. He, he's actually disrupting things. 
he's shaking the apple cart and and opening. I can tell you when Dion. I think Dion left the NFL Network before I left Fox Sports. My memory, sir, and I remember being inspired. I, I I remember being like, man, Dion, that's pretty ballsy. And it shook me up and, and was like the final straw in me saying, you know what? Cut off these corporate ties. If you really want to reach the top, if you really want to have the freedom to be disruptive and to say what you really think. And so it, obviously Dave Portnoy, what he built at Barstool Sports inspired me. It looks like inspired Clay Travis. Uh, what Bill Simmons did with the ringer, I'm sure. And, and event, you know, Grantland or what, all of that, inspired by Dave Portnoy. And I know Simmons was inspired Portnoy, but then Portnoy actually had the balls to stay the course and to be authentic to who he really is. Whereas Simmons, and I say this respectfully, uh, but Simmons pivoted. He became PC. He sold out to HBO and the woke crowd and, you know, acquiesced. Dave Portnoy hasn't. Now, I know a lot of his employees have, and there's a lot of little woke sheep over there at Barstool now, but that guy continues to stay the course and continues to be very disruptive and continues to be his own man, and he is shaking up this industry. His relationship with Deion, I, 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 hats off to him, I, I look, and, and turn around, the next thing I know, that video Pat McAfee put out last week about his deal with FanDuel, I watched all 17 minutes of it. It was very inspiring. And again, you got to tip your hat to Dave Portnoy. He credited, uh, Pat McAfee credited Portnoy and Barstool for basically teaching him the game. Portnoy is maybe the most important man in sports. And, and I know that's a mouthful, and I may regret saying that, and upon further review, I may have to walk that back. But I don't know, <laughs> I don't know anybody being more disruptive in the sports world than Portnoy and Barstool. Uh, so I, I just kind of, I want to start there, Steve. Have I said anything particularly foolish here? No, I don't think so. And as you were talking about Portnoy, who is the great American entrepreneur and a renegade and the word that you use, disruptor, certainly someone that I respect for everything he's done and created. I think you could say he's the Elon Musk of American sports media because he plays by a different set of rules. He put up his own capital and time and he's built something. Anyone that could build something from the foundation up and sustain it and to grow it is someone that I have a lot of admiration for. And, um, you know, researching the history of Barstool, it started back in 2003 as like a gambling newsletter, went online in 2007. And here's an interesting thing. They partnered up with ESPN for a show that lasted about two and a half minutes before that was yanked because of the SJWs at the network um, and the populace that was taking place. That could be a seminal moment that we look back on because there is that old phrase, Jason, uh, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer, right? Isn't that the old phrase? It is the old phrase, and, and you're right. And it looks, to me, it's turned out to be the best thing that's happened yes. 
among many good things that have happened to Barstool, not getting in bed with ESPN and remaining a pirate ship and a renegade, uh, it doesn't. It feels like nothing but good things have happened to Barstool ever since. I know that I guess it was Business Insider or whatever just tried to take down uh, Portnoy over you know sexual impropriety uh, recently. But when I look at that, and I, again, I, I I believe Dave Portnoy's narrative on that. I believe he has a responsibility to his employees to act more responsibly and don't put himself in that position. But at the end of the day, when I look at that and what Business Insider was trying to do to him speaks to how disruptive he is that people are trying to take him out by any means necessary. He's upsetting the apple cart. He is, you call him the Elon Musk, he's the Donald Trump of sports media and maybe all of the media. Uh, if, 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 and the Donald Trump is a good analogy because if, if I'm Portnoy, the position he's in right now, he has a chance to really elevate as if he could get out of his own way. If he, at this point, he needs to invite some more brain power to his situation. I know, what's her name, Nardini, Aaron Nardini, or Erica Nardini, or who are the woman he brought in to be CEO. That was a smart move, gives him some cover from the uh, female, the feminist crowd and, and shuts up some of their critics. Uh, but if they could elevate their content to a higher level, because it, their, their content is basically has stayed the same. And, and, and because so many of the people working for them, uh, not Portnoy, but so many people working for they've gone woke. They've gone a little bit corporate and want to make sure that, oh, if things don't go well here at Barstool, I can always hop over to ESPN or Fox Sports. Dave needs another pirate or two or three to help steer that ship because they should be leaning even more into Dave's personality and his way of doing things because it is working. I, I, I can't believe I'm saying it. Uh, but but it's true, and I'm just telling you what Dion uh, is doing at Jackson State and his association with Barstool just helped me like realize like oh my the sports world is changing incredibly rapidly, and one of the strongest change agents is Dave Portnoy. You know it's interesting with Portnoy and Barstool where they go from here because you're right they have to have this fine balance between who they are, what is their DNA, what was their original mission statement and to stick with it and then what do they need to be to get to that next level and sometimes you have to evolve which is a very fancy way of changing but then not changing too much because then you risk alienating your base here's where i think barstool has certain advantages that maybe a fox sports did not in terms of challenging an espn they they are now right in the thick of the social media era and Every single mobile device that you have, like your mobile phone, your laptop, that has now replaced the television. There's more cable cutting going on every year, where back when Fox Sports was trying to rival ESPN, you really did not have that. 
Marstool and Dave Portnoy is also very savvy on social media. They seem to manipulate that market very, very well. Now comes the content. That, that's the one thing where ESPN has a stranglehold. Uh, the streaming service, The Zone, which is really deeply involved in boxing, they found out it's very difficult in the United States to gain a foothold with the American public if you don't have one of the major properties like the NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball. And so that's the next step for Barstool is where do they go from here? But again, they're still relatively young and new in this space as a media conglomerate. I remember growing up, Jason, I was an ESPN fanatic. And their first live sporting event that they actually showed was slow pitch softball. And I remember shows like Vic Braden's Playhouse. And they would show old NFL films. And remember this? Australian rules footy. I actually was a guy that watched a lot of it because it was sports. But then eventually they had the NBA package. They got the NFL, I believe, in 1987, Major League Baseball. So this question has to be revisited, let's say, within a decade or so, because these things do take time. Do you watch the television show Succession? I'm a fanatic. When I grow up, I want to be Logan Roy. So, yes. Oh, awesome. I've been beating my head looking for somebody I could talk to about succession on this show. I I can't say that I love this season, but I love this show and it brings up interesting deals. And so I'm going to go another step with my Dave Portnoy analogy. This the guy that Logan Roy, I think his name Matson or whoever the little just that he tried to partner with here at the end, and actually yeah. the guy bought his company. Right, uh, he's buying out Waystar, and he's basically overtaking it. That's who hmm. Portnoy is, and he he, he basically what what you're talking about the content is like the the Matson guy partnered up with Logan Roy and Waystar because he needs the content. He needs their journalistic chops, whether or not the people, you know, the, the people putting on the show, whether they respect Logan Roy or not, or whether he's a villain or not, they need that content. And, and I, I just, I found this season of <laughs> succession not fulfilling, but interesting in terms of the points they were trying to make and, and just how they're capturing how like the media landscape is changing at rapid pace. Uh, obviously, Succession's point of view is that, you know, these wokesters and Kendall Roy, it, that's the way it should go. And Kendall, as flawed as he is, is trying to take uh, ATN, which is basically Fox News, trying to take him the direction of CNN because that's responsible or blah, blah. Anyway, I, I just, I guess, <laughs> just again, say again, Portnoy has an incredible opportunity right now to really become a giant. Uh, and again, he's made a ton of money. He's, he's done well, but he legitimately could be Rupert Murdoch if he does the right things over the, and he's, to me, he's got probably a five-year window to do those things or, or his opportunity may pass. Well, look, the key for Dave Portnoy is to make sure he ends up like Logan Roy and not Kendall Roy and don't ever be Roman Roy and send pictures to the wrong person. That's going to be the key. But I I don't think it's just a five-year window. Look, these things take time. And Barstool Sports, I just thought for years, I'll I'll come clean, was just a website. 
That was a website with this guy from New England, Dave Portnoy. I didn't know much about him. But look at the growth that they've had. And it, it is not even fair to say it's a cult following. It is a large following. They matter. And I could see them because, look, there's going to come a point in time there's going to be a market correction in terms of the rights for certain properties in sports. And it, all it takes is a game of the week, one time a week, and all of a sudden you get a foothold within that door, and then you become – that network. So again, let's be patient with this. I don't think it's a five-year process to do all this for Barstool. Dave Portnoy looks like a guy to me. He's going to be like Logan Roy in a sense that his job is his life. Like Bob Arum, who just recently celebrated his 90th birthday, he's going to die working at top rank. That's his legacy. That's his life. And his goal, I don't know if he's ever said it, but I get the sense of Dave Portnoy in the back of his mind is saying, I'm never going to retire. And my goal is to build Barstool into the biggest thing it can. So, again, I don't look at it as a five-year window. Uh, I look at it as a 40-year mission. And so I just want to be crystal clear. I'm not talking about a five-year window of success. I'm saying if the right decisions aren't made over the next five years, the opportunity to really uh, disrupt ESPN, disrupt Fox Sports, be a major, major, major disruptor, the decisions he makes in the next five years, if he makes them in year six, year seven, year eight, I think it's too late. Now, will he always be here and be a player? But uh, it, it's like I'm t Fox Sports had a window to disrupt ESPN and the window passed. And I sincerely believe that's not hate, that's just what, what I believe. They raised a white flag and basically became a knockoff of ESPN. They, they spew the same woke garbage as, as ESPN and, and, and instead of leaning into Rupert Murdoch while, you know, cause who knows, I mean, Rupert Murdoch I think is in his 90s or close to, uh, you know, how much longer is he going to be there? And, and again, that's what, like when Rupert Murdoch was at the top of his game is when Fox Sports should have gone all in and really gone after ESPN. Lachlan Murdoch, his son, doesn't have Rupert's balls. He wants to be popular with the celebrity in crowd, and that's why Fox News and, and Fox's brand has wavered and over the past few years. That's why they, you know, on election night, basically sold out their base. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's well, all I'm saying is like, go ahead. Jason, one key partnership that I think Portnoy made is uh, he sold a share of his company to Ben uh, Penn Gaming, right? Isn't that a gambling portal? Yeah, Penn National, yep. Yeah, Penn National. That, that, that's key because more and more I, I, we are seeing in American sports that gambling is now becoming mainstream. It's not just your local bookie. You can do it online. It's very legal. There's more sports gaming outside of cities or markets like Nevada. I believe Atlantic City three, four years ago made it legal. Them leaning into the gambling angle because, look, you and I, we may not care about turtle racing, but if we have 50 bucks on it, we will care about turtle racing. So right there shows me that they do have this long-term vision of how are we going to grow this brand. The other topic that we didn't talk about last week and should have, I didn't get your thoughts on, 
Pat McAfee. He's off the Portnoy tree, uh, coaching tree or <laughs> podcasting tree. Signs an incredible deal with FanDuel. Uh, again, this speak, Pat McAfee getting that deal sent shockwaves all throughout sports media. Once again, we keep getting these shockwaves. But, but Pat McAfee, to have done what he did basically in five or six years, how long ago did he retire from the NFL? I, I don't think it was that long ago. I think it was just the final bat signal to everybody in the media, particularly in the sports media lane. I can sit over here at ESPN and Fox and I can repeat these woke talking points and I'll make a nice salary and it's fine. But if I ever want to hit the real pot of gold, I got to man up and do what Pat McAfee did. And I think Pat McAfee's deal that he just got with FanDuel is just like the final deal to let it, that the real impact is away from legacy media. The, the, the real people with genuine talent, it's away from legacy media and it's not swimming in that woke lane. And I, again, I know that Dan Levitard and those guys struck a nice little independent deal, uh, you know, and they swim in those woke waters. But McAfee just got something that dwarfs all of that. I, I, I you know, this plain woke and this little fake uh, stuff that people have been, it just doesn't work and legacy media just doesn't work if you're really trying to hit a home run. Well, look, you know, a high-priced salary at a network is lucrative, but independence and controlling your own content is priceless, and you got to have some guts. And obviously, McAfee has that. He's created a brand. He's crafted a persona, and he has a good show. Going back to what you said a couple of minutes ago about how some of the barstool content creators or people involved in that company are now trying to go woke, trying to fish for other jobs, so they have to kind of uh, shift their ethical and moral statements online. Hey guys, once you're at a place like Barstool, I'll, I'll equate it to this. When you star in porn or adult movies, you don't ever get to become George Clooney. So when you do this, in my view, Jason, and you go to an independent platform that is like a renegade platform, you gotta understand there's no going back. You have to be all in on this. And I said this a couple of months ago as we talked about the Aaron Rodgers immunization situation, about what is Aaron Rodgers going to do after football? And people have said, well, is he going to work for a network? Is he going to do television? And I said about two months ago, no. If he does anything, he should do his own platform and start his own quote-unquote network. Jason, there's YouTube channels that have millions of subscribers that do hundreds of thousands of views a day and people are making a very good living in it. It happens in boxing a lot with a lot of these content creators that every day they're on the grind, getting their own content, doing interviews, and they're making a pretty nice living. The rules have absolutely changed. There was a point that you had to be at one of the big conglomerates, get the color within the lines, play within the rules. But now with platforms like YouTube, for better or worse, whatever they do in terms of censorship or guiding a message, you can be independent if you have the know-how and the balls. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to add to the Urban Meyer situation? <laughs> you know, him, him well, getting... Well, no more canned. than what TG I don't really like said. it, to be honest, but... Yeah, but well, here's the thing. 
I, I think as Urban Meyer applies for his new job, I don't think TJ Moe will be one of his references. But here's the thing. I blame the owner. Uh, uh, Shad Khan, I think is his name. What did you think you were getting? Look, here's the issue that I have with Urban Meyer that in hiring him, because he is what he is. He's a college coach. When you coach college, you can be a dictator. Even now, with the NIL and transfer portal, you are largely uh, the guy that can rule with an iron fist as you get young men. But as you coach grown men, you have to be a benevolent leader that works side by side. It's a completely different game. And Nick Saban, two years into the Miami run, he said, you know what, let me get back to college. It really puts into perspective that the run Jimmy Johnson had from 1984, the day he got to Miami, all the way to the time him and Jerry Jones departed ways, is the greatest 10-year stretch of coaching that I have ever seen to be a national championship caliber coach and to win a couple of Super Bowls concurrently, I don't think will ever be done. And as I look at Urban Meyer, reminds me of a lot of Lou Holtz. He actually lasted 13 games. Only difference is he actually won one more game than Urban Meyer did. But he was a college coach. And, and Lou Holtz, there's a quote that says, God did not put Lou Holtz on this earth to coach pro football. And you know who said that? Lou Holtz. <laughs> Steve, I'm going to let you out. go. Yeah, he spit it out, by the way. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to let you go. And we're going to move on to uh, Shamika Michelle. Shell's about to get a lot better looking and a lot better content. I love the Korean Cosell, but he's no Shamika Michelle. Uh, Shamoke Show. We must exist in a state of man glorious, as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors. The fearless army is one nation under God, indivisible, with freedom and belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement, they comprise what we call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and of this nation. We reject the seeds of division planted by corporate media and misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal, endowed with inalienable rights, granted by our Heavenly Father. We are honor-bound to accept God's challenge and to take the flag and lead, to cherish, protect, and nurture our born and our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier. Shed no tears for me, for I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. All right, welcome back. Uh, time to bring in Shamika Michelle because I want to talk about uh, there's a Twitter feed called Libs of TikTok, and they post some of the most interesting stuff that I've found 
on the internet. They're just documenting through videos and, and what people write and ex exposing what the real agenda is of the alphabet mafia and how much control the alphabet mafia has over America's institutions and culture. And I believe it was yesterday they posted uh, a woman speaking at a school board meeting, I believe in California, uh, about her daughter, I think, that at the school, she was using a different gender, a different name. They came up with a different email for her. And this was all being orchestrated or mentored or counseled by the teachers there, unbeknownst to the mother, the parents of this kid. And I had just had a conversation, I believe last week, with one of my best friends in New York who was telling me about frustration within school systems out there that in certain schools that it was like illegal or the schools were warning teachers against, hey, if a child is here and wants to use a different gender, use a different name, don't tell the parents. And so schools are cutting parents out of the loop. The schools have more say so and believe they are smarter than the parents. But anyway, Shamika's a parent. That's why we're bringing her on to talk about it. But I want to play this clip uh, from the mother speaking at this school board meeting. And she's very, she's justifiably very upset. You've let these teachers come in and act as if they have nothing wrong. They've done nothing wrong. A mistake? How long of a mistake? How many mistakes are we going to take before my child almost lost her life? They didn't tell me that my child was suicidal. You allowed these teachers to open their classrooms teaching predatorial information to a young child, a mindful child that doesn't even know how to comprehend it all. How do you not know what was going on on your own campuses? Did you think that no parent would ever come forward? You will not quiet me today. I will stand here today and protect my child along with every other child who has not come forward yet. Do you, do you, do they have psychiatry degrees that I was unaware of? Because I didn't hire them, okay? I did not hire them to sit there and nitpick my child's brain. You took away my ability to parent my child even before I had any knowledge. I didn't even get to show support. You asked for support, I didn't get a chance. You planted seeds, Ms. Caldera, and Ms. Baraki, Mr. Baraki, and you, Ms. Pagarin. Your job was to educate my child in math, science, English, etc. Do your job and let me do mine. They assumed, they assumed that my child needed your aid and resources. They pushed it in the face. And tonight, I will stick up for her. Ms. Caldera, you're guilty. Ms. Baraki, you're guilty. You changed her personal documentation, her gender, her name, her email. I authorized an AKA added to her attendance because I wanted to be supportive. But guess what? She's allergic to bees. Her medical record says a birth name and you changed it. Who administers that now? Not everything, not me. You guys did this on your own accountability and you've gone too far.
They downgraded me in front of my child and allowed me to question myself as a mother. You sat there and told me how my child was going to be. And then you wrapped your hands around her while I sat across the table and cried. Because you thought you could be there better than I, and I never got a chance. She was scared to even say anything. Your guys' voice were heard, not hers. These people are nuts. And those of you sitting around, oh, I hate Donald Trump. I hate Trump supporters. While this type BS goes on, while your kids are getting indoctrinated into a lifestyle and a gender identity unbeknownst to you. But you said, well, at least Trump ain't in office. That's all, that's what's really important. It's, it's Trump, he's the bad guy. It's not these school systems that are exercising rights over your kids, over your objections, over what you believe. There's a story that was in this thread of the libs of TikTok about uh, leaked audio reveals how California teachers recruit kids into the LGBTQ club. We'll read some of the a leaked audio recording reveals two teachers at a recent California Teachers Association conference mocking parents over their concerns about homosexual and transgender indoctrination at school, says a source who attended the event in Palm Springs, California. The recording, obtained by the Epcot Times, captured two seventh grade teachers employed by Buena Vista Middle School in Salinas, California, telling other teachers how to recruit students into LGBTQ clubs, also known as gay straight alliance clubs at school. I, I'm not a parent. I shouldn't be more concerned about this than many of you are who spend all your time worried that uh, Orange Man is bad and oh my God, Trump supporters, uh, they flooded the Capitol and that was a threat to me and that was all racial and, and so I'm gonna look the other way as schools indoctrinate our kids. Uh, Shamika, again, I'm not a parent so I gotta call one in. Uh, your thoughts on this mother and this whole little indoctrination fiasco that's going on in schools across the country. Jason, I feel like as a nation, America has been neutered. Um, Martin Luther King wrote in his writing, The Purpose of Education, that education should enable us to discern the truth from the false, the real from the unreal, and the fact from the fiction. He went on to say that if we aren't careful, colleges would produce a group of um, illogical, unscientific, 
closed-minded propagandists who are consumed <clears throat> with immoral acts. And I think that's exactly what has happened. We have allowed colleges to indoctrinate, and now these those that have been indoctrinated are now indoctrinating our children. And as parents, this has been going on for a long time. I liken this to when I'm on the dance floor and a man doesn't recognize my personal space and he gets too close to me. I'm While I'm dancing, I'm taking a few steps back and he keeps taking a few steps forward. And then I keep taking a few steps back. And before I know it, we're in a totally different place on the dance floor. I think that's exactly what has happened in America. As parents, we have allowed different entities to continue to take steps forward. And we've taken steps back. And now we are looking around and we are in a totally different place on the dance floor. This is this is not new. We have just allowed uh, different entities the government to step in and do our jobs as parents for us. And this is where we are. In North Carolina, between 11 and 13, they can kick you out of the doctor's office when you are with your child so that they can have a conversation about whether or not that child needs a birth control, counsel that child on mental uh, issues or emotional things, talk to that child about STDs, whether they need any type of STD test. This is between 11 and 13. And we've allowed them to take the place of what parents should be doing. And instead of us saying, hey, the issues that we're seeing in America is because we are not allowing parents to be parents. We are, we are given the solution to everything else. The problem is starts in the home. First of all, parents need to be parents and we need to start standing up to this foolishness because now that we're in a different spot, now we want to fight and we have to, but this should have been taking place a long time ago. And now it is time for the real mama and papa bears to, to push back and, 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 and keep moving forward. What you're talking about is, is taking responsibility for the human beings that you created. And I'm wondering if, and I'm just going to ask very bluntly, and I, I'm, I'm going to apologize up front, but, but have we as black people been so indoctrinated into victimhood and government dependence that we don't want the responsibility we want the schools, we want doctors, we want everybody else to make decisions about our young people. We wanna turn their care and development over to others. Have we been made to feel that we are inadequate to be responsible for that? Or, or, or do we just not, we just reject the responsibility? I think for some they do. And I think for others, they just have no idea what they have really done and how bad it is. You know, thankfully for myself, I actually with my 16 and 18 year old, the only full time job I've ever had during their education process was at their school. So I've been able to be a present force 
at, at all times. I think a lot of people have been so consumed with making money and living their best life that they have not really paid attention to what's going on in, in schools. And I do think some parents feel like it's not their job or that it's not their responsibility, but then it's affecting all of us. It is affecting those of us that know that it is our jobs. We want it to be our jobs, but we haven't been paying close enough attention and so, you know, I don't know if parents feel like they're inadequate or they don't want the job. I do see that in some households. Some households, they don't have a father in the home. And so the mother has to work and she is not paying attention to what's going on because she's at work all the time. And when she gets home, she's tired. So she doesn't have that conversation with her child to say, hey, how was school today? What did you learn? What's going on in the classroom? Parents are not showing up for PTA meetings. Parents are not showing up for honor roll programs or even to just have a conference with the teacher. Parents are not doing that anymore. And so it is time for, if you feel like you're inadequate, number one, stop having children, don't have any more. And, it, and two, it is time for those of us that do care to make some changes. You make an interesting point in terms of you, you're lucky enough that your full-time jobs have been at the school where your kids are. And so, because I, I do think when you're a single parent, you only have so much bandwidth. And we have convinced everybody that making money and providing money for our kids is the number one thing. Oh, if they just had money, everything else will be fine. And so I can see someone watching this and saying, there's only so much I can do. I'm a single parent, I'm a single mother, I'm a single father. I gotta go out here and make this money and I should be able to rely on the school system to stand in the gap for me because I only have so much bandwidth. And, and the reality is that you do only have so much bandwidth, and that's why marriage and family structure and two involved parents are so critical. Because If that's not going to be the case, your kids are going to be turned over to the police, to the purple-haired school teachers, and to other people that will try to impose their worldview and their beliefs on them and not the worldview and the beliefs of the parents. I, I, I'm telling you, I watch these videos and I get so sad and I almost get hopeless. Like, I don't, I don't know if this is fixable. Jason, I don't give an excuse uh, to a single parents to the point where they have to be absent. Like, yes, they do have only a certain amount of a certain amount of time each day. However, I was born to a 15 year old. So by the time I was in school, she was in her 20s. My mother did not miss PTA meetings. My mother made sure she came to the school to talk to teachers. My mother made sure she was at programs that I was in, games that I participated in. So 
as a parent, you can do it. And what I think is that we've also given them too many excuses not to. So you can do it as a single parent. Yes, it may be harder. Yes, it may be more difficult, but you can make time for what you want to make time for. Sometimes they're on social media two, three, four hours, but they have missed a PTA meeting. You can make time for what you want to make time for. We say that all the times. I see it in all of the memes. If a guy really wants to be with you, he'll let you know. He'll make time. If you really want to be a parent and you want to be a good one, you will make time for your children. Thank you, Shamika. Great job as always. Uh, Delano, just around the corner, he's written another column. Uh, and we'll get into that with him. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's roll immediately out to Washington, D.C., because I need Delano to cheer me up after that last segment. I, I, I'm, I'm legitimately depressed and feeling down right now, and I'm remembering what uh, J.D. Vance told me about despair being a sin, and, and I'm just looking at what's going on in these schools and uh, the pressure kids are under, the influence kids are under, the usurping of authority, of power, influence from parents uh, by these school systems. It's, I'm just, it depresses me. And so, uh, Delano, I know you were watching that or listening to that. Uh, can you cheer me up? <laughs> That's a tough task, Jason. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I will say this, um, I do think there's reason to be optimistic. And I think part of it comes from seeing parents like that mother um, step up to the plate and be bold enough to push back on the influence that schools are having on their children. Um, so, so that's part of what I'm hoping, you know, just spreads like wildfire throughout this country because for too long, too many parents have been asleep at the wheel and, and there's no other way to say it. Um, too many of us have discharged our responsibility for our children blindly onto schools. Um, and maybe in decades past, the schools were responsible and wise enough to really care for that responsibility. But at this point, they are totally consumed with pushing their own agenda, their own ideology, oftentimes their own partisan political views and our children just end up being unwitting participants in a social experiment. So when you see school districts that, you know, take a child who may, you know, be experiencing some, you know, gender confusion, right? At, at home, the parent says, oh, Jenny is just a tomboy. She likes playing with her brother. She likes to roughhouse. She likes to wear baggy clothes. And by the time you get them back from the school, the school tells you, no, um, Jenny is really a boy named Tom. And too many parents have just allowed that to go on without saying anything. Um, and I think it is, it is high time that, that we step up and we say no more because the, uh, 
as you said, Jason, the, the schools have gotten to the point where they are usurp clearly usurping the authority of parents. And when you use a different name when the child is in school than their given name, and then you switch back to the given name, when the parent comes around, um, you know what you're doing. You know you're being dishonest and duplicitous. Uh, and I think it's about time that more attention was, was brought to that. And I'm thankful for libs of TikTok, um, that, that Twitter account, because they allow people to see what actually goes on throughout society, but particularly in our schools. And a lot of people may not want to hear this, but libs of TikTok is a much better representation of the political agenda of the Democratic Party in 2021 than anything else you'll see on social media. They may speak the language of moderation. Um, they may talk about you know certain issues. They may say that we're still a party of unions and labor, but it really is um, a libs of TikTok party. And the Democratic Party as it stands now, their views are shaped much more by the board of the New York Times than they are the, the board of the AFL-CIO. Uh, so let's transition. You've written another uh, brilliant column discussing uh, the idea of black identity or racial identity. And, and this came out of a conversation you and I had last night and a conversation you've been following over social media that Leonidas Johnson, who appears on this show, and I believe Barrington Martin, I believe, is the other guy, a guy that I, I follow on social media. They've been debating racial identity for dang near two weeks. And, mm -hmm. and it made you, it inspired you to write, to want to write something about how should black people, how should we view our culture, our identity? Can we do we need one or should we just have an American identity and disavow a racial identity? Uh, anyway, explain your thoughts uh, from your column you wrote today. Sure. And you mentioned Leonidas and, and I think he takes more of an um, uh, individualist uh, position. Uh, I would say that, that Barrington takes a similar position. And then on the other side, there's a, there's a gentleman named Jeff Charles who does a lot of writing and content and is a, um, a black conservative and so associates with sort of the conscious conservative movement who takes a, a different position. I, I don't want to call it a collectivist position per se, but he takes a position that acknowledges the reality of black culture and says it's something that, um, that black people should embrace along with their American identity. And, and I think, you know, my first um, responsibility is to try my best to sort of represent the different positions correctly. But, but for me, it really inspired me to think more about, you know, some of my own feelings around identity. And obviously, Jason, we, we talk about identity in all different types of manners. We certainly, the things around, you know, sex and gender and gender identity that are hot topics nowadays is one. Race, obviously, we talk about I, you know, a Christian identity or people who have a different faith is something that we talk about. But it was interesting seeing people question whether black culture exists and what it means to be black in 2021 and what it should mean to be black in 2021. So I just took, you know, the opportunity in a column to um, lay down, you know, somewhat of a foundation, my own foundation that says, yes, you know, black culture is real. Um, 
it, it's it may sound different than you know the way other people articulate you know their culture because by virtue of the realities and the the historical nature of American chattel slavery, a person like Tim Scott can't say, yes, my ancestors came from Ogun State, Nigeria, right? Everyone who came over had their tribal identities erased, and what resulted was an amalgamation of different people from different languages, or, or different regions speaking different languages in, in Africa, all becoming Negroes. Um, so, you know, what unfolded from there has been, to me, one of the most inspiring uh, stories of, of human triumph that, you know, I can think of in modern history. Um, so I, I talk about, you know, some of the, the pillars of what we call black history, which is really American history from, you know, Frederick Douglass. I mentioned uh, Marian Anderson and, and, you know, generals and, and medical professionals and astronauts and you know, all different types of people who have contributed to the rich tapestry of American culture in very distinct ways. Um, and then I also, you know, reference my own identity, right? So the son of, of immigrants um, from a tiny island in the Eastern Caribbean called Barbados, which recently itself became a republic after almost 400 years of uninterrupted British rule, and how that has shaped my ideas and the way I see myself. And and also growing up in New York City, which, you know, a lot of the black population in New York City, people who have roots in, in either Africa, direct sort of ties to Africa and the Caribbean. But seeing those distinctions is just that. Every time you see a distinction doesn't mean it has to come with division. So when my wife and I got together, and she's from Houston, with family from Louisiana and Mississippi, we grew up in different places, different regions, had different uh, perspectives on everything from the size of government to the role of guns. But when I mentioned in the piece, when a song from Mint Condition or Jodeci comes on, we have the same exact reaction. So it's not to say that every black person has had the same exact experience in this country, but there are enough things that black people from different regions can relate to that you can see sort of a through line of culture um, that people grab onto. So so I sort of set that as a, a frame and then talked about how, in many respects, racial identity has been hijacked, um, particularly, I'd say, since the 1960s, and moved from something around biology and phenotype through the era of culture to now the era of political ideology. And I think that was one of the things that more individualist people are pushing back against, that there is a blackness that includes, you know, um, pick a person, LeBron James or Oprah Winfrey or whoever, you know, whatever prominent Democrat you could think of, but exclude someone like Clarence Thomas or Winsome Sears or Condoleezza Rice or Larry Elder, people who have been described as foot soldiers for white supremacy. So uh, I think that's, my sense is that that's part of the reason that some people push back on leaning in too much to a racial identity, but um, I end up finishing the piece by talking about, for me personally, having the firmest foundation of my identity built on, you know, sort of my position as a child of God, made in his own image, um, you know, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and able to appreciate all that God has created, 
from the various nations and people groups and tribes and tongues and languages um, to the various cultures that we see and being able to do so without resentment, envy or jealousy. And, and that's really what, where I want to leave off. And, and to say that if we as a country don't um, overcome this, in many respects, sickness that we have, this autoimmune disease that's infecting our body politic, we're not going to have any identity. Because as we were talking about with the previous segment, we're at a point now where our most um, intellectual sort of uh, you know, leaders, you know, are, are, are the people who claim to be the smartest people in the country, also claim that they're not sure whether women are the only types of people who can get pregnant. And if you and if we can't sort of come to an agreement on the reality of biology. Uh, identity won't matter because we'll all be extinct. What do you say to me, someone who's reaching the conclusion that an American identity is all that we need and that actually there's been so much damage done to our racial identity that we should walk away from it because it can't be rehabilitated. The, the, mm. the left has defined blackness as rap music is, is like essential to our identity and it speaks to our culture and it, it is our culture. And so much of rap is profane, perverted, uh, satanic, violent, that, you know, we, and, and our history, you know, if you start in 1776, we are essential to American greatness, essential. Mm. Our pursuit of freedom forced this country to evolve and become better and better and better over time. You know, you can't have American exceptionalism without black people. And so I just don't understand. I, I think we should lean into our American identity and walk away from a racial identity because and particularly as it relates to skin color, because I don't see Asian Americans, you know, yellow pride. I just don't see yellow pride. To, actually, they consider that an insult. Uh, and they seem to be doing quite well. I'm not even sure if Latinos really believe in brown pride. Uh, and, and I get that our history is different and that you know, white people for a long time tried to smear, and now they have just completely smeared blackness. But I, I just, I guess I've just come down, I need a Christian identity, I need an American identity, and all the rest is just stuff that weighs me down or does me no good. Mm. So, so I understand where that, where that thought would come from, right? So let me, let me respond to it this way. And, and one of the benefits of me growing up in New York City is just being able to interact with people from so many different countries and cultures from throughout Europe and Asia and Latin America, the Caribbean. Um, so I came to understand race and ethnicity in a very, very different way, right? So most of the white people I met didn't have roots in the American South, right? They were from Italy or Ireland or Poland or Russia or somewhere. and while they would say, yeah, you know, I'm Italian and you can tell from a person's last name, um, that wasn't necessarily the most 
important thing about them. They didn't start every sentence with, well, as an Italian, I think. Um, and I think even to this day, there are Italian-Americans who um, are proud of their ethnic heritage, but they don't necessarily uh, wear it on their sleeve. They don't, uh, they, they don't act as if just because you know that they're Italian that you know everything else about them. So I, I think they found a way to uh, both have um, an, an identity, an ethnic identity that roots them somewhere in a particular place while still being able to retain the individuality so that you could be an Italian conservative, you could be an Italian liberal, you could be an Italian who, who likes pasta, who doesn't like pasta, you can be an Italian who doesn't speak Italian, but you can be any of those things but also proudly declare yourself as, as, as an American. And my sense is that you know, for, for black people who are questioning what to do with our racial identity, um, my sense is that that, that type of model um, pr provides a template of some sort. Because Jason, you know, it, it, we can't totally walk away from it because if, if black people say, well, I, I no longer have a racial identity, then what do you do with HBCUs? How do you make sense of HBCUs, not just historically, but in 2021 or 2121, right? Or the black church, quote unquote, with its particular set of um, traditions and, and history and ways of having service and ways of interacting, you know, between pastor and congregation. So I, I don't think that is realistic for any people group to say, um, well, the things that have brought us this far, we're going to get rid of. I do think it's realistic to say, again, I, I know who I am. I know where I come from. And again, particularly for, for uh, black Americans whose family history stretches back generations in this country, that, that place is, is America, right? You, if you don't know where you come from in Africa, you can't, you may say African-American, but it really doesn't have, you know, a particular meaning. So I, I think seeing black folk who embrace both their ethnic identity and their national identity is a, is a good thing. Um, I, think, I think that's a good thing, because as I said, God created all people groups and nations and boundaries so I don't think there's any reason for us to run away from those things, but I do think it's difficult because as you said, the left has captured ideas around racial identity and now hold black people who don't ascribe to their views hostage and basically tell them, you're not black enough. Um, you know, we're, we're gonna put you out. You're a foot soldier for white supremacy. You're, you're a mouthpiece for, for white nationalists. And I think that's part of the reason that people push back. But as I said, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not in the business of calling anything that God created um, a bad thing, right? If it says that he created these things, people, groups, and cultures, and languages, and tongues, then I don't see anything wrong with embracing them. I do see something wrong with making them an idol. And I, I think that's probably where we are today. I guess, let's take the black church for an example. I would probably say, yeah, I'm a skeptic of the black church. I believe in neighborhood <laughs> churches. And so mm -hmm. literally, I, and so I've made a conscientious choice. I, I could live pretty much wherever I want to live in Tennessee and the surrounding areas. I intentionally live in a zip code in an area that's 39% black. And so I should find a church 
within my zip code, within my neighborhood, and I want to see my neighborhood represented at that church that I attend. And, uh, you know, in my zip code, there is Tennessee State University, <laughs> there's Vanderbilt, uh, there's Limscombe, uh, what I'm trying, there's the Belmont. And so I believe in, you know, like, because I'll never forget, there's, I'm going to call his name. It used to irritate Howard Bryant, the sports writer for the uh, ESPN. Mm-hmm. This dude, uh, and, I, and everybody knows, I got no problem. He got married a white woman. I got no problem. Mm-hmm. But don't get on, when, when the cops bust you for putting your hands on her, mm. and he started complaining about how they were racist, and started complaining about, I mean, uh, the town where this happened in is 98.3% white, and blah, 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 and they're racist. And my first thought was like, hey man, you chose to live in that right. zip code. That, that's a decision you made that you were comfortable with. But now that they catch you putting your hands on your wife, now they racist. So mm. again, there's never been a zip code that I lived in that I didn't know the demographics of the people I was around and it's a choice. And so I was like, you lived in a zip code 98% white because that's what you were comfortable with and that's what you wanted to do and, and deal with the consequences of that. Don't put your hands on your white wife uh, and the, the cops will leave you alone. And so th- that's what drives me crazy about the black left. It, 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 it's, we're just, we want to live out here and then tell people mm. there what they should do. And, and, and we want to dip our toes into the black community by visiting a church on Sunday and then immediately mm-hmm. evacuating back to our white zip code and neighborhood. I just don't believe in that. And so people, mm. I, again, Booker T. Washington talked about cast down your bucket and, and make your happiness. And that's what my father did. And that's what I'm trying to do. And so I, I'm just going to go back. Yeah, I, I, and in terms of supporting HBCUs, I certainly believe in them because they've done a great job of educating black mm-hmm. people, a far better job than predominantly white universities, in my opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. But having said that, I just don't think the way blackness has been defined by mainstream America and and all the pressure that's put on people to, you got to use the N-word. You, you, you should speak in a little bit of a broken English. Uh, you, know, you need to wear your pants hanging a little bit low off your ass. You, 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 smoking weed is important if you really want to be, you know, and, and make sure whenever you go in that voting booth, pull that Democratic lever, all the things that they've made central to black identity, I just, they're, they're at odds with my Christian identity. And if I can only choose one, Jesus or my black skin color, I'm mm. gonna have to at 54 choose Jesus. Mm. Previously, I made different choices. I, I'm well aware of that. <laughs> and, and, and I think you, 
you raised some excellent points, Jason, and I'm glad you started, you know, that that portion of the discussion when talking about the black church, because it it shows the limitations of identity. Right. Because I would say that the black church, particularly in 2021, and I'm not saying all majority black churches, I'm, I'm talking about a specific set of churches who see their primary role in society, not as advancing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but of advancing a particular social and political agenda to free black people from what they see as um, the worst form of bondage, which is social and economic and racial oppression, as opposed to bondage to sin, right? So I'm I'm talking about a very specific set of of churches. Powerful what you just said. Could you please repeat that? Because I don't think most people understand that concept. The oppression of sin versus this other oppression. Just just slay it just a bit more slowly. That was a powerful statement. So, yeah. So in many respects, when we talk about the black church, again, it it, it comes out of a particular history. Right. But my, my contention is that in 2021, there are many black churches who see their role primarily as freeing black people from what they see as the worst form of oppression, which is racial and and economic um, injustice and discrimination, as opposed to freeing its congregants from what the scriptures describe as the worst form of oppression, which is bondage to sin. Uh, So in many respects, these churches have tilted completely in the direction of being black and away from the direction of being a church. Um, so in, in a lot of churches I'm talking about, they're basically just a glorified NAACP with a leader who wears a clerical collar, um, and that's about it. So when you listen to someone, for instance, like Reverend William Barber from North Carolina, you really can't tell the difference between him, and, and again, he says he's a, a reverend, um, and the average sort of democratic functionary. He, he parrots all the same talking points. He even goes to Planned Parenthood's 100th uh, year anniversary, not to rip them a new one, not to criticize them for the destruction that they've wrought in the black community, not to, to uh, excoriate them for the uh, eugenics campaign that they've run on us, for keeping our population at 13%, he goes there to congratulate them on the good work that they've done. So in many respects, uh, the, the churches that I'm talking about, the black churches that I'm talking about, who again, come out of a particular history, um, their arc is similar to the arc of many other black institutions or leaders or groups who have taken what freedom has uh, presented them with and run the ball in the total opposite direction. We're at the point now, Jason, where the chair of the Africana Studies Department at Howard University, again, one of the most significant colleges and certainly HBCUs in the country, says that women who seek abortions in other states because of the Texas abortion law are basically channeling the spirit of Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. That is how backwards our leadership class has become. So I agree with you that putting all of your eggs in a racial identity is a very, very dangerous pop- proposition. Um, and it's one of those things that keeps a lot of black folk locked into a particular place. And I, I said this in the piece that black history has a, a particular arc 
with particular eras and uh, let's say from the 1600s all through you know the 1960s i would call that the black fist era where black people again with a common history had had functioned as a ball fist in order to deliver a knockout blow to the the types of overt discrimination and oppression that they faced at that particular time but since those laws have been changed the black community in many respects has become an open hand still connected but a little looser right not as the formation is not nearly as tight because we don't all have the same values i don't share values with black lives matter the organization i i just don't they're against the nuclear family i'm for it they're for abortion i'm against it they're anti-god they channel spirits they when they say their name quote unquote they are trying to channel spirits they've said so I'm against that. So in many respects, you know, we don't have the same values. We have the same skin color. And again, it shows the limitations of racial identity. But that open hand means that there are opportunities just waiting around for us and all Americans to take advantage of. But if we are so blinded, right, and so um, brainwashed by what I've described as the Selma syndrome, to think that America in 2021 is the same as in 1921, then our our hand will stay open waiting for the the two things that we think will lead us to to the promised land, bigger government and better white people. And it'll stay open for, for the rest of time until we grab hold of the opportunities that are right in front of us. Delano, thank you. I'm a really corny 54-year-old. I'm just telling you, that bondage of sin deal that, that, that you went through has me so emotional. When I hear something that profound and something that just opens my eyes to the truth and, and a way of explaining the truth, that I, it's, it's, thank you. Uh, this is why I call you the smartest man on the show. Uh, it's, it's. Thank you. Uh, we're going to move on. Thank you, Jason. I'm going to collect myself, and uh, Uncle Jimmy will be right around the corner. Uh, Delano Squires, with some powerful words there. Uh, I hope that you all, you got, I'm just, a, are you a fearless soldier? Because if you are, if you want to save this country, we got to amplify things like what Delano just said. Are you telling other people about what we're doing here and what you're involved in? Are you amplifying the things that are said on this show that are that profound? And Delano just, to me, made one of the most profound points and explained it and articulated it in a way that even a baby could understand. You need to be sharing that. You need to be pushing out Delano's content and telling your friends about Delano and this show. If I don't get a bunch of five-star reviews today over Apple and people leaving comments talking exactly about what Delano said today, you're not really a soldier. You're just here to be entertained. You don't want to save this country. You don't want to bring this country together. You don't really want to be in this army.
Alright, Uncle Jimmy's around the corner. It's my obligation or hate discrimination raising up your hands for freedom. All right, uh, welcome uh, to my favorite time of the show. Although, I'm going to be honest with you. Delano was so good today that I was almost not the best person on this show. Just being honest, I was almost not the best person on this show. He was that good. Okay. That he was almost as good as me. Okay. Uh, and so I just wanted to hear your review. If you Was he really... As good as that, that he was almost as good as me? Uh, we have a phrase in the inner city, and they even have it in church, and they say, all of that and a bag of chips. <laughs> 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 yes, he was. But, uh, hey, man, once, I'm going to give you credit. I mean, you had a great show today. And, and, and that's the one thing I have to give you credit for, because every now and then you, you know, they say the sunshine on the dogs. You know, you, you, you did. You pulled, you, once again, you pulled it out. You had a great show. T.J. Moe showed up, showed out, did what he did. He did. I mean, T.J. Moe honestly said something that I told you about this. He said the exact same thing about Dion that somebody told me at Fox. The exact same words. Dion only cares about Dion. The exact words. That's exactly what was said. You know. I could. That, that's that's that may be accurate. Um, let me ask I you. Like Dion. Re- re- real quickly, do, do, do you think that? What, what do you think the chances are that? Uh, TJ is going to get a Christmas card from Urban Meyer. <laughs> Not good. Uh, probably a better chance. Oh, oh boy, now I was going to crack a bad joke. Hey, man, TJ has pretty much said that Urban Meyer is the terminator of college football. <laughs> he said all Urban Meyer said is, I'll be back. <laughs> hey, look, TJ's a good dude. I love him. But honestly, he's a little bit naive when it comes to Bill Belichick now. Talking about, oh, he follows the rules. No, nah, he, he, uh, he, he don't break the rules. Yeah, he might not break them, but he bends the hell out of them. <laughs> Come on, man. Stop that, man. Uh, Steve Kim. Hey, Jay. How did Hey, Jay do? Uh, <laughs> hey, man, he kind of scared me a little bit. Because he's talking about Urban Meyer. And he said, if you coach in college football, you can become a real dick, Tater. <laughs> and he scared me for a minute, man. <laughs> and then he had this one line. He had this one line. He said, now listen, he said, Jay, if you do porn, you can't later on become George Clooney. <laughs> now what he should have said was, if you do porn, you can maybe come back and become George Floyd, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I thought. <laughs> that's where I thought he was going, man. <laughs> that's below the belt, Jim. You probably just got me in trouble for even. That's your joke. I <laughs> and I'm gonna At give least I left the Martin Luther proud of it. St. George Floyd is. <laughs> George Floyd does Dallas. Go. Dallas was fine. <laughs> anyway, then we, of course we had we had the first lady, Shamika. Hey man, I don't know if you realize or not. Shamika came out there dropping truth bombs. Yeah. I mean, honestly, she just came out the door quoting Martin Luther King. Just, I mean, honestly, she she just came out dropping bombs. Uh, real quickly, um, I don't know if you know this or not. This is a true story. Uh, my son, I told you that's about me taking my son to get a physical. 
He got his physical from a female nurse, okay? I'm not, you know, I, I'm actually laughing because this is his first physical and the first young nurse. So I go in, I said, uh, so son, did she make you cough? And she immediately corrected me and said, oh, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, I've heard that. Well, how do you know what you just examined? How do you know what my son is if you don't make him cough? Because what she said was there was never really a reason for that. Really? Whatever, man. And anyway, man, Shamika, Shamika, I love her, but she slipped up just a little bit at the end. I don't know what's going on, but she slipped, slipped up a little bit. Now, what did she say? She said, if a parent wants to spend time with the kid and at the child's school, she will. But then she slipped and said, that's just like if a man want to spend time with a woman, he'll find a way to spend time with her. <laughs> Shamika, where'd that come from? <laughs> Shamika, what, 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 what's going on now? <laughs> come on, now keep your personal business out of here. Oh, now. you need to have a private conversation about it. Hey, man, I don't know. I saw her have the red bottom brim on. I don't know what was happening there, man. Yeah. I need to holler at Meek, man. But honestly, but the guy, Delano, Hey, man, Delano came out, and I love Delano. You tried to make Delano lie. The first thing came out of his mouth. You said, Delano, can you lift me up? <laughs> Delano's like, ooh, I, that's going to be a tough one, Jay. <laughs> I said, cheer me up. We're hey. done. We're going to the approval. <laughs> I said, cheer me up. Uh, so. meant uh, the same thing. Come on, man. Let's go. You wanted to do this. I wanted to do Urban Meyer. You wanted to do an approval rating on the Jacksonville Jaguars. So that's what we did. The Shad Khan has fired Urban Meyer. Uh, job performance. They've got two victories, so I'll give them a two in job performance. I'll give them a zero. Urban Meyer has been an absolute disaster for Jacksonville. <sighs> a disaster. So you done hopped on the group thinking Urban Meyer's the problem, huh? Right. Well, uh, I take that back. We're, we're doing Jacksonville, right? Yeah. Jacksonville's your problem. Come on. Urban, Jacksonville's the one to sign that check for Urban Meyer. Come on. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, character. And, you know, it's kind of hard to rate the character of, of a team and organization. No, it's not. I gave them a four. No, I gave them a 25. This is what they do. This is their character. This is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Garbage. If they can mess it up, they will. Uh, authenticity. Uh, actually, I think Jacksonville's pretty authentic, actually. They, they, they had a problem with Tom Coughlin as the president of the organization because they said he was too rough on the players. And then they hired, bring in Urban Meyer, and it's like yesterday there's a story, Urban Meyer kicked the kicker. He kicked the kicker in the leg. Did he make it? <laughs> <laughs> so I think Jacksonville's pretty authentic. Uh, authenticity, I give them a 25. They are as real as they can get. They are real bad, man. Yeah, that's true. Honestly. Uh, and then it factor, I just don't think they do a lot for the TV ratings or excitement around the NFL, so I give them a one in it factor. I give them a zero. Never had it, never will. <sighs> there you go. Tamara, would you please whisper some naughty nothings in Jason's ear? He's having a hard evening. Come on, oh, really? man. Uh, uh, that, that is, that's exactly what I need. But some freedom? Tomorrow, singing. I, that's exactly what I need. She need to change that song to tonight. Damn, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> she can lift me up with this song. So, all right, thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner. 
I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want 